Well, good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Ephesians. And we will be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 this morning. We have we've taken a break from Ephesians for the last few weeks as we uh, walk through the Gospel of Mark for our, uh, our Lenten series. Uh, and now we are back in Ephesians. But before we read, would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word, we confess that we need your Holy Spirit to give us illumination. This is, in fact, what Paul teaches us in Roman uh, in Ephesians 118, that it's your spirit that illuminates the truth of your word, revealing your truth to us. And so, Father, apart from your Holy Spirit's presence and work among us, we confess that we are utterly incapable of digesting and understanding and applying the truth of your word into our lives. And so, God, give us this request, we pray today. Lord, we come as, uh, as hungry children, longing to dine from the truth of your word. So it's my prayer, God, that you would guard these lips from error, guard our hearts and our minds from error. And, Lord, we pray that you would bring among your people today, here at Crosspoint particularly, Bring among us a unity of the faith as your word teaches. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus told the disciples, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I want to begin by asking a question this morning. We are in Ephesians chapter 4, but I want to begin by asking you a question this morning. Is there any power that can destroy the local church? Think about it for a moment. Is there any power that can destroy the local church? Well, the New Testament writers seem to be unanimous in their answer to this. And the answer is, yes, there is a power that can destroy the local church. But it is not Satan and the demons of hell. It is not the power of hell that can destroy the local church. In fact, Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow in their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Our Jude writes in verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Other New Testament epistles speak similarly with regard to the self-destruction that the church can bring about in its own relationship within. New Testament writers urge and exhort the church to guard against false doctrine and against the ungodly. 
It's interesting to me that the powers of hell can prevail against the church. But if false doctrine and ungodliness are not checked, they can destroy and prevail against the local church. Unity, then, isn't primarily the absence of conflict or discord in the body. Instead, unity is a thing the church has to actively work toward. And it's for this reason that I think Paul is commending and and is exhorting the church in Ephesus toward unity. And so the title of our message this morning is The Necessity of Unity. And we see this in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. So if you found your place there, I want to invite you to follow along as I read. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We'll stop there this morning. But this morning, what I I want us to see in this text is the unity of the church is built upon our confession of faith and lived out as we grow in Christ-like character. In Ephesians Ephesians 4.1 is the, the hinge of Paul's epistle marking a division in the letter. Chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6 really are two separate parts. His his focus shifts from rich doctrine in chapters 1 through 3, where he's been detailing the, the Christian's privilege in Christ. He's highlighted our election, our adoption, our redemption, our forgiveness. He's highlighted that we've been sealed by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And now in chapters 4 through 6, Paul sets out to lay out the Christian's responsibility in living out our calling. And in one sense, Ephesians 4.1 sets up a question that the rest of Ephesians will answer. And that question is, what does it mean for the Christian to live a life worthy of our calling? So in chapter 4, he answers this question. In fact, in verses 1 through 16, the answer to this question comes in the form of of unity. His focus is on unity, but then in verses 17 through 24, his focus turns to purity. So in verses 1 through 3, we have our first exhortation, and that is to let your life exemplify your calling. In other words, to walk in a manner worthy of calling means that our life would actually exemplify the very calling of God on our lives. So when someone looks at our life, it shows an example of this calling. They're equal in the sense that we are living out what God God has commanded us to. We're faithfully living out what God has called us to. So if we're going to understand how our life is to exemplify our calling, we must first ensure that we're operating, I think, from a proper biblical understanding of our calling. Paul has laid this out in chapters 1 through 3, highlighting both the privilege and responsibility of our calling. And in doing this, he eliminates any confusion that would surround the believer's calling. In the whole of Ephesians, Paul seems to be making the case that theology should form our ethics and morality. 
and consequently our ethics and morality should display our theology. In other words, our view of who God is and what he has done to reveal himself to his creation should shape and to form our conduct, our way of living as a church, as a, as a believer. And reciprocally, our way of living, our ethics and our morality will display our belief about who God has revealed himself to be. And so in verse 1, Paul introduces himself. He identifies himself as, as who? A prisoner in the Lord, right? As we've already seen in chapter 2, verse 6 and verse 10, Paul views the whole of his life as being in the sphere of the Lord. He says of the believer, we've been raised up with him, in verse 6, and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And in verse 10, he makes the point that we're God's masterpieces, his workmanship, created as new men and women in Christ Jesus. In essence, what Paul is saying is that his imprisonment is not outside of God's providential control. And that God is mightily at work in his life. And the same needs to be said and professed by every believer today. Our attitude and perspective shouldn't be, woe is me, or I'm just a, a, a bad luck Bob. No, our, our, our circumstances of life are under the control of God. And whatever the circumstances of life, we can't miss that God is at work through our circumstances to bring about his perfect will. That's why Paul can sit in a prison cell and write a letter to exhort and to encourage the church. This doesn't diminish the pain or the difficulty of the journey. Instead, it should increase our awareness and our trust in God's provision, in his care, in his presence, in his providing strength and equipping us to endure life's many trials. To want relief from difficulties and from hardship isn't wrong. It's just human. But to miss God shouting to us in the midst of difficulties and hardships, that's a tragic waste of our circumstances. And it's a tragic waste of the opportunity to know God's power at work within us and through us. And you see, it's from this perspective that we're exhorted by Paul. Let your life exemplify your calling so what's the calling for the ephesian church what's the calling for cross point i think a quick review will help us to remember this clear calling so quickly flip back to chapter one and in chapter one verse three we see this beginning of of the spiritual blessings in christ and so first we need to see that god's mighty salvation in christ gives us privileged status and this privilege status, this privilege, these privileges are seen in verses 4 through 14, these spiritual blessings, right? Even as he, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 14, verse 13, we were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. Right? Who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. The Holy Spirit enlightens our eyes to the wonderful hope of salvation, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. 
that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Verses 20 through 22 there of chapter 1, we're, we're united with Christ in his resurrection and his exaltation to share in his rule over the new creation. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, that Jew and Gentile are both reconciled to God through Christ's death and called into one new humanity, one new race, the church, God's people. We have the privilege now, chapter 2, verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have the privilege of freedom of access to the Father by one spirit. We are members of God's household, the new temple of the Lord, verse 19 and verse 21 there of of chapter 2, right? So then you are no longer to be strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are the dwelling place of God, brothers and sisters, as a church. We have a divinely ordained role in God's purpose for the cosmos. Chapter 3, verse 10. It's through the church that God is displaying his manifold glory to the world. But this privileged status, it's matched by responsibility, isn't it? We see that responsibility in verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth... The gospel of your salvation and believed in him. This belief, God expects his people to respond to his divine initiative of salvation through believing. Our election is so that we might be holy and blameless before him, right? Verse 4 of chapter 1, so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Our adoption and redemption leads us to praise him. Chapter 1, verse 6, verse 12, verse 14, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. This ought to be the result of our salvation, believer, that we are ready to praise God, to praise him for his, his glory. As new creations in Christ, we are responsible to walk in the good works which God prepared beforehand. Chapter 2, verse 10. Right? We're his workmanship. Chapter 2, verse 10, in fact, says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. You see, knowing the privilege of God's salvation presses the believer into service where we responsibly live out our calling. And our calling then is to live in such a way that we display and proclaim this magnificent salvation to the world. And we do this by believing in Christ, by being holy and blameless, by praising God because of Christ and what he has done, giving us access to the Father, and by engaging in good works which God has set for us, before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in them and that accordingly we would be shaped into the likeness of Christ. So church, if this is our calling, how do we walk in a manner worthy of it? This is a lofty calling, isn't it? It's a high calling. It's a heavenly calling. He first addresses our character. Let your life exemplify your calling The character of a worthy walk is seen in verse 2. 
Paul says there are three necessary character traits that should be increasingly present in every believer's life. These are present, however, only through the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And so Paul wants us to see that these are are necessary for our unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Look at verse two in which. Nope. Wrong chapter. Chapter four, verse two. With all humility, so we are to walk in a manner worthy of calling to which we have been called, you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience. In order to live out our calling to which we've been called, we must live with all humility, Paul is saying. Now, it's doubtful that any of you who would turn in a resume to a potential employer would list on your resume the virtue of Humility. I think the reason is because humility isn't an employable virtue according to the world. Humility is viewed as weak, right? It's viewed as timid, as, as soft. But this is the world's view. And it's, it's so often discovered in the Christian life. The ways of the world are foreign to the ways of God, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, the ways of the kingdom of God are foreign to the ways of the world. Humility means to think or to judge with lowliness. It calls us to lowliness of mind. One writer said humility is the most foundational Christian virtue, and yet it is the one that must never be owned, only aspired to. Why? Because in the moment that we own it, pride creeps in, doesn't it? Bernard of Clairvaux said humility is a virtue by which a man becomes conscious of his own unworthiness. You see, humility is the window where we see ourselves for who we are before holy God. Imperfect sinners who are incapable of being at peace with God through our own merit. That's who we are. The Greeks and Romans didn't see humility as a positive virtue either. In fact, when they spoke of humility, it was most commonly used in a derogatory sense and almost always used to refer to slaves. Yet, Hear what Paul does. He extols humility as a chief virtue for a worthy walk of our calling. Jesus himself modeled humility, didn't he? In Philippians 2.6, Paul says of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Christ demonstrates the kingdom of God's perspective on humility. Humility in the kingdom of God is being concerned with the welfare of others by esteeming the welfare of others above my own. When believers live in this way, we exemplify our calling. But the real difficulty is to swallow our pride and to humble ourselves to the point of serving others. We tell our children this all the time, don't we? Kids, think of your brothers and sisters first more than you think of yourself. <laughs> humility is the mindset of, of service and blessing others. Christ's humility should inform our attitudes and our actions toward others. So church, how might we exercise humility toward others? In what ways can we serve one another's welfare above our own. This past week, I took the liberty to contact Sherry Wilson, our preschool ministry leader, 
the asker who served in the nursery during service on Resurrection Sunday. And so she passed those names along to me, and I sent, the email, I sent an email to those individuals thanking them for placing the welfare of others, of parents in our congregation, above their own welfare. It's Resurrection Sunday. Everybody wants to be in church on Resurrection Sunday. But you see, their selfless service allowed parents to gather for worship while they watched and cared for and prayed over the least of those among us. Believer, how might your humble service build up the body? Perhaps it's using your gifts of teaching to serve our children in Sunday school or or in equipping classes on Sunday evenings on a periodic basis. How is God shaping the character of humility in your life, in our congregational life? Not only are we called to humility, in order to live out our calling to which we've been called, we must also live with gentleness. Another word for gentleness is meekness. And meekness is, in fact, a sign of humility. Many dictionaries define meekness in terms of a deficiency in courage or spirit. One who's compliant, one who's unassuming. Is this what Paul is calling the believer to? This unassuming quality, a deficiency in courage and spirit, one who's simply compliant and indifferent. The biblical lexicon defines humility, um, gentleness or meekness rather, as the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. You see, the meaning here has nothing to do with, with cowardice or weakness or indifference. In fact, this word was used in the speaking of taming a wild animal such as a horse. When a horse was broken or trained, they were said to become gentle or to be meek. This didn't mean that the horse didn't have strength, right? Such an animal still has, has a strength and spirit. But its, its will is under the control of a master now. The horse can still jump and can still run fast. He can run as fast as he ran before, this time, though, he, he only now runs when and where his master tells him to run. So it is for the believer who submits himself, herself, to the Lord. Meekness, gentleness is power under control. We see a picture of perfect meekness in Christ's messianic kingship, don't we? As Christ suffered on the cross, we wouldn't say that he was weak. In Matthew 26, 53, Jesus tells his disciples, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Instead, Jesus submitted his will to the father's will. He fulfilled his messianic mission of bringing salvation to the world without force. He was gentle. He was humble in heart. In his agony in the garden, he demonstrated perfect obedience and trust in the Father's plan. He waived his own rights for the sake of saving his people. You see, the gentle and the meek person isn't powerless. Instead, he or she responds willingly to God's word by submitting their life, submitting our life, submitting our fellowship to the Father's plan. Their lives exhibit the wonderful balance of power under control. This means the believer then isn't vindictive, not argumentative, not harsh or, or lashing out at others. Instead, we're ones who, like Christ, 
exercise self-control as instruments in God's hand for his glory and for the good of others. But thirdly, in order to live out our calling to which we've been called, we also must live with patience, he says. This probably needs the least amount of explanation because we're such great failures at patience, aren't we? We all know the difficulty of patience. And yet Paul lists patience as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The call to patience is predicated on God's patience with us. The word literally means long-suffering, to be long-tempered. And it's precisely because of God's forbearance, His patience with us, that we ought to respond likewise, demonstrating patience with one another. These are the characteristic marks of a believer who lives worthy of our calling. Listen, these are, don't, don't hear me say this morning, these are ways for us to be good Christian men and women. That's not the point. These are, ever incre- these are to be ever-increasing marks of the transformation that God is working in our lives as new creations. That we would be humble, gentle, patient, especially in dealing with one another. And to the degree that our character is being shaped in these three areas determines whether or not we're walking in a way that's consistent with our equal to our calling. Well, if these internal, if this internal work of, of character is seen in patience and gentleness and humility, I think it's closely linked to the external response that demonstrates the growth of this character. In other words, these character qualities of humility and gentleness and patience really fuel the activity of a worthy walk. They fuel the activity of a worthy walk. We see this in the second part of verse 2 where he says, bearing with one another in love. This speaks to the action of these foundational characteristics. When humility, gentleness, and patience are present in our lives, we're able to bear with one another's weaknesses and failures, aren't we? Humility and gentleness speaks of, of our approach and our temperament toward others. We become more patient with the shortcomings of one another and even learn to endure wrongs rather than flying off the handle in anger toward one another. Brothers and sisters, this is how our conduct is to be characterized with one another. I think we could then list a whole host of personal relationships where this becomes practically relevant. In fact, that's exactly what Paul does in the remainder of the book of Ephesians. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, or 1 through 4, parents in dealing with children, children in responding to parents. Chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, spouses in dealing with one another. Chapter 6, verse 4 on through verse 9, employees in submitting to the authority of our employers. Interacting with one another in the body, chapter 5, in the beginning. Those who, interacting with those who aren't converts of the faith, living in purity, chapter 4, verses 17 through verse 32. You see, as believers, these characteristics are necessary in our lives so that we bear with one another in humility, in gentleness, in patience, in love. In love. Peter, in his epistle, 1 Peter 4, 8, says this, Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, church. Listen, 
since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Church, here's how we live out our calling. It's through serving one another, through loving one another, through working to allow these character traits of humility and gentleness and patience that are born by the Spirit to come and to grow to, to, to come to fruition and to, to grow in our lives. Not only though are we to bear one another in love, we also are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This word eager, it has a sense of urgency to it. In other words, he's saying we must labor urgently to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It means we ought not let discord and unrest exist among us. We ought to come together quickly and urgently. Why? Because the testimony of the church depends on it, Paul is saying. Paul sees the unity of the body of Christ as of utmost importance for our witness to the world. In fact, Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And what Paul is saying is that we must be on guard, laboring quickly to keep our unity intact. This doesn't mean unity at any price. Certainly we can't jettison the fundamental truths of the gospel of Christ, as we'll see Paul actually points out in a moment. It's all predicated on one body and one spirit and one hope and one Lord and one faith and one baptism. And one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. But we're not to let discord and backbiting take root in our fellowship, church. We must walk in the unity that God's spirit creates. Consider yourself, brother and sister, as a minister of reconciliation, not only to the world proclaiming Christ to a world that needs to hear the hope of the gospel of salvation, but a minister of reconciliation within the body to bring two brothers or sisters or a brother and sister who are at odds with one another, to bring them together to work out the differences. Why? Because the testimony of the church is dependent on the unity of the body. And we cannot afford to let discord set root or take root within the body. And because we've been indwelt by God's Spirit, He has unified us in the bond of peace. Like links in a chain that must not, that cannot be broken. So the church must labor diligently, urgently, bearing with one another in love to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The second exhortation that he gives us this morning is to let your calling be grounded in unity. We see this in verses 4 through 6. He actually gives us seven foundations of unity and we'll walk through these rather briskly, but first we need to note that this unity, the unity of the church, is built upon the Trinity itself. In verses 4 through 6, in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Verse 5, one Lord. Verse 6, one God and Father of all. Our calling to unity, our calling to faith, is based upon this common confession, Paul says. And so he says, here it is, we are one body, referring to one people of God. The big C church is a heavenly gathering in Christ made of Jew and Gentile, all nations in other words. 
We are one new humanity. And each congregation is the local manifestation of the body of Christ living in a visible way in the world. We are the community of saints who meet here on this campus and our gatherings and our fellowship ought to display God's magnificent saving grace. And this one body is brought about by one spirit, he says. The same spirit who dwells in you also dwells in me. Also dwells in every twice born believer of every nation under heaven. The Holy Spirit works in our lives to make us part of one body together. He's the one who seals us for the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. One hope, he says, that belongs to your call. This this hope is the certainty and expectation of our being with Christ in glory. When Christ is revealed, we will share with him in his glory. So the question is, how, how did this calling become effective in your life? Who was it that preached the gospel to you so that you first believed? Believer, we have this hope which becomes effective in others' lives through the proclamation of the gospel. This is what Paul is asking for prayer for in Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. And also for me that the words may be given me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which he says... I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He also says there in verse 5 that this one spirit and one hope is found in one Lord. This word Lord is the Old Testament name for Yahweh. In the New Testament, it becomes a a title used to speak of Jesus. And Jesus is Lord because of his resurrection and because of his exaltation to the right hand of God. And as Philippians 2, 9-11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, right, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. In Ephesians, Paul uses the title Lord as a designation to speak of Christ some 20 times. And this one Lord that he is calling us to is the one who is who gives us every spiritual blessing, right? He's the one in whom the new creation, the holy temple, the church is, is growing. He's the one who fills the universe with his sovereign rule. And in believing and confessing this one Lord, we are to have one faith. One common faith, one common belief in Christ's lordship. Meaning, not one belief in God for the Jew, another belief in God for the Christian, another belief in God for the Muslim, another belief in God for any other religion. One common faith. That Jesus is the fulfillment of God's redemptive, eternal plan. That Jesus Christ is the installer of a new covenant. Paul says, let our unity be founded and be grounded on this truth, on this confession. 
this one faith and one baptism. Paul makes no distinction if this baptism is spiritual, that is, by the spirit that he intends us to understand, or if it's by immersion through water baptism. We could say minimally that it's spiritual, that we all as believers have been baptized into his spirit. But I would also add that as Baptists, we affirm the act of baptism is the manner through which we, uh, we, we, we signify and show that we enter into this new covenant. We show it to the outside world. And so we affirm what's called credo-baptism, where we are baptized following a profession of faith in Christ, where we have repented of sin and we have trusted in Christ's salvation. And so baptism doesn't precede a person's faith. Rather, it, it follows a person's faith. This is why Jesus gave us the ordinance of baptism as a sign into the new covenant in Christ. This new covenant was established through his blood when he died and he rose from the grave. And so Paul says that we have this one hope, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then he says, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul here affirms his faith and he exhorts the church to affirm their faith in the fatherhood of God. We are his creation. We are made in his image. And God is, the trans, is transcendent over everything. All things that, that are, that were, that will be. He's ever present in the universe. And he works in all things and through all things. He's at work within the universe to bring about his sovereign plan to fulfillment by ultimately unifying all things in Christ. This is the point that Paul has made and is making here. Is that the unity of the church displays the testimony of God's marvelous redemptive plan to the universe. You see, the church is a foretaste of God's glorious presence among his people Peter O'Brien in his commentary says the church is the multi-ethnic community of saints. A society of pardoned rebels brought together in unity to display God's masterpiece to the universe. And the point Paul's making, this common confession of the church by which we're unified, we are one body brought together by one spirit, saved with one hope, serving one Lord, professing one faith, participating in one baptism, knowing one God and Father of all who is powerful and sovereign over all. And because of this, Paul exhorts the church to let our lives exemplify our calling and to make certain that our calling is grounded in this confession of unity. Let me ask you this morning, is this your confession about who God is? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God and Father over all. Believer, how, how is God growing you in humility, in gentleness, in patience? Are you bearing with one another in love? Is there someone that you need to reach out to and walk with through a difficult time? Are we being the body of Christ to one another, being ministers of reconciliation? 
Are we eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Are we faithfully living out our calling that God has called us to? Are we being responsible in proclaiming the gospel to the nations individually and corporately? As we prepare our hearts and our minds this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want to ask you to consider these two scriptural exhortations and to consider their implications in your life. That we would let our lives exemplify our calling and that we would let our calling be grounded in unity of this confession. And then I want to encourage you to to sing out to God and praise to Him for His glory and for the magnificent salvation that He has given us. And so this morning... As the worship team comes to lead us musically, I want you to bow your heads, consider these things before the Lord, just you and the Lord, and then let that lead you into a time of worship. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of our salvation. Lord, we confess that we all need to grow in humility and in gentleness and in patience. So God, teach us to be strengthened by your spirit and dependent upon you. And Father, teach us as your people to serve one another selflessly with all humility and gentleness and patience and to bear with one another and to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Teach us, Father, how to do this, how to be advocates for one another Teach us, Lord, how to live out our faith consistently as a testimony to the world that draws glorious attention to you and to your goodness. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.